Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 1st, 2022. I missed you last Thursday night, although I must tell you, I was in the midst of a very wonderful and gratitude-filled Thanksgiving celebration with my family in New York. We had a wonderful, wonderful time, but I did miss you, and it's wonderful to be back with you tonight. The first piece I'd like to share with you is um, based on, inspired by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I've added a little bit to it, but I want to credit him for most of this first part. So uh, we have this week's Torah portion, the Parsha Vayetze, is about our patriarch Yaakov, Jacob. Yaakov is the third of our patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But the question is, what did Yaakov do to merit joining that august group? I mean, Avraham smashed his father's idols, followed God's command to leave his homeland, left everything behind, introduced monotheism to the world. Amazing. Yaakov did not do anything like that. Yitzchak was willing to offer himself as an offering if that's what God wanted. Yaakov did not do anything like that. What do we see in Yaakov's life that causes Yaakov to earn, to deserve, being one of our three patriarchs? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs suggests that it is the narrative at the beginning of this week's Torah portion, where Yaakov is in the middle of a journey between one danger and another danger. He left home because his brother Esau threatened to kill him, and he's about to go to the home of his uncle Lavan, which is going to present other kinds of difficulties and challenges. And so he is alone, far from home, at a moment of maximum vulnerability, and the sun sets, and it's night. And Yaakov lays down to sleep, and at that point, Yaakov has this majestic vision. The Torah says, Vayachalom and Yaakov dreamed, Vihine Sulam Mutsov Artsa, Magia He saw a ladder that was resting on the ground and its top reached the heavens. Vihine Alakim Olim Viyardimbo, and he saw angels of God ascending and descending. And at the top of this ladder, he saw God. And God said to him, God said to Yaakov, I will be with you. I will guard you wherever you go. And I will return you to this land. Because Yaakov was on his way outside of Israel. I will return you to this land. I will not abandon you. Until I fulfill this promise to you. And Yaakov wakes from his sleep. And he says to himself, There is verily God 
in this place, I'm in the presence of God, I didn't know it, I didn't realize. And he's struck with awe, and he says, How reverent, how overwhelming is this place. This place is verily the house of God and the gateway to heaven. Notice the beginning starts with the words He came upon a place. Vayifka implies an unexpected encounter. Yaakov did not know that God was there. As far as Yaakov knew, it was just a normal, routine place. Vayifgabamakom means that Yaakov had an unexpected encounter with God. Now, remember, which we'll get the narrative that we'll get to in next week's Torah portion, another scene of Yaakov at night when he's wrestling with the angel. And this is going to lead us to understand Yaakov is the man who has his deepest spiritual experiences alone at night in the face of danger and far from home. Yaakov meets God when he least expects to, when he is in a state of fear, and thus Yaakov becomes the father of the people who have their closest encounter with God in a place that Moshe will later describe as the howling wasteland of a wilderness, the desert. And Yaakov will be the progenitor of a people, the Jewish people, who go through a series of exiles whose longest portion of our history has been in exile. By meeting God in darkness, Yaakov is the one who teaches us that even when we lose everything else, we do not lose our contact with God. Avram gave us the courage to deal with the idols of the age. Yitzchak gave us the capacity for self-sacrifice. Yaakov gave us the ability to connect with God in our darkest moments. And that's why Yaakov is the third patriarch. Because he teaches us, though we may fall, we fall into the arms of God. As Rabbi Sachs writes, the broken heart lets in the light of God and becomes the gate of heaven. We recently discussed two different modes of interpreting the Torah. One is omek pshuto shel mikra, a deep reading, a close reading of the actual words of the text. And we allow the text itself to speak to us in how to interpret and understand the narrative. What does the Torah actually say? That's one approach. 
And then there's another approach that I described as a midrashic approach. And this is also a fundamental way to interpret and understand the Torah, every part of the Torah. This is where the rabbis construct background stories, not in the text, but perhaps hinted in the text. The rabbis give us fleshed-out personalities as they ascribe words and actions to these characters. Now, it's very complicated to know if when the rabbis give us these stories, they mean to assert that these things actually literally happened, or are they providing context, the sense of the matter, which is often ambiguous and contradictory, as life is. But it is not actually in the text of the Torah itself. But let's not discount this midrashic way of interpreting that fills in and fleshes out the text of the Torah because many of our most important and lasting lessons and values are transmitted there. So allow me to share with you one of the most beautiful, poignant, midrashic lessons, which comes from our Torah portion. I have shared part of this with you before, and I repeat it now in order to add a new ending. Our Torah portion describes Yaakov travels to his mother's family. He meets and falls in love with Rachel. And he asks her father his uncle Lavan, for permission to marry her. Lavan agrees, but Yaakov must work first for seven years. Finally, after seven years, the day of the wedding arrives, and Lavan fraudulently substitutes Leah, Rachel's older sister, at the wedding. So Yaakov is married to Leah, not to Rachel. Now, later, Yaakov will marry Rachel also. But let's focus for a moment on the deception itself. How do you pull off the wrong daughter getting married? The Torah does not explicitly tell us. Perhaps the veil plays a role. Maybe there was a lack of lighting that was involved. But there is a curious phrase in the text of the Torah that doesn't say anything explicitly, but leads our rabbis to provide a backstory. The Torah says as follows, And it was the morning after the wedding, Yaakov realizes the woman beside him is Leah. He has married Leah, instead of the woman that he planned to marry, Rachel, her sister. Vayomer el Lavan, and Yaakov says to Lavan, his new father-in-law, Mazos Sisali, what did you do to me? Our rabbis noticed, Vayihi Baboker, and it was in the morning. In other words, it was only in the morning that Yaakov realized that he had been tricked. How did he not realize the night before? I mean, without going into detail, but on the wedding night, you would expect 
the bride and groom to know who each other are. So here, our rabbis provide a remarkable backstory. Rashi quotes it. Yaakov suspected that Lavan was going to try to pull a trick like this. And so he acts to prevent it. Before the wedding happened, Yaakov said to Rachel, we're going to have a password. We're going to have a code, a special word. And you'll say that word to me, and I will know that you are Rachel and that your father has not tricked me. Seems like a foolproof plan. When Rachel saw that her father was going to commit this fraud and was going to provide Leah under the chuppah at this wedding, in this marriage, Amra, Rachel said to herself, My sister is going to be embarrassed. She's going to be humiliated. Yaakov is going to realize she's not the right one and she'll be humiliated in front of everyone. Amda umasra la osan simanim. Rachel gave the password to Leah. So that night, Leah said the word. Yaakov thought that he had married Rachel because of the word that Leah had said. Only in the morning did he realize that he had actually married Leah and not Rachel. And this stands for all time as one of the great acts of selflessness. Rachel didn't know, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, Rachel didn't know that she would marry Yaakov later. In her mind, she was giving up her opportunity to marry the man that she loved and who loved her in order to prevent her sister from being embarrassed. It is profoundly, selflessly beautiful. Leah is buried beside Yaakov in Hebron, the southern part of Israel, as his first wife. Rachel is buried alone miles away, near Beis Lechem, north of where Yaakov and Rachel and Leah are buried, just south of Yerushalayim. Our rabbis in the Midrash connect this fact to a heavenly confrontation and a prophecy of the prophet Yirmiyot, Jeremiah the prophet. Later in Jewish history, during the first temple period, the spiritual level of the Jewish people in Israel declined and some Jews even began, God forbid, to worship idols, angering God over this rivalry, choosing idols over God. And God planned to destroy the Jewish people, God forbid, to bring about the end of the Jewish story. Our rabbis in the Midrash describe how one by one the souls of the patriarchs and the matriarchs came before God to plead for mercy, to relent from destroying his children, and God ignored the pleas of each of them until 
the soul of Rachel came before God. And she said, Master of the universe, surely your mercy is greater than any human being. But when I was faced with a rival, when my father Lavan substituted Leah for me in order to marry Yaakov, not only did I remain silent, I gave Leah the password so she would not be embarrassed. I allowed a rival to come between me and my beloved. Surely you, God, should be able to do the same when your children, my children, have chosen a rival over you. Surely you, God, must find a way to forgive them. And God said to her, Rachel, you have defended them well. I will send them into exile, but I will not destroy them. I will bring them back to Israel. Rachel is buried along the road that the Jewish people traveled as they went into exile. And Rachel's soul cried for them as they passed her grave on the way to exile. But through the prophet Yermio, God makes this promise. Come, Ar Hashem. This is what God says. Call Barama Nishma. I hear a voice, a sound coming from Rama. Rama is the name of the place where Rachel is buried. And the sound that I hear, God says, Nihi Bhi Tamrurim. I hear bitter crying. Rachel Mavaka Albaneha. Rachel is crying for her children. And she refuses to be comforted. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no longer here. They are being sent into exile. Thus does God say, Stop crying. Stop your eyes from tears. Because there will be a reward for your action. And your children will return from the land of their enemy. And God says, there will be hope in the end. Your children will return to their land. <clears throat> Rabbi Melik Biederman asked the following question. How is it that only Rachel was able to exact such a promise? What about Avraham? Avraham was willing to sacrifice his son Yitzchak. That didn't earn that God should accept his pleas? Didn't he earn that God should make him this promise that his children will be returned? Why didn't Avraham deserve this? Or Yitzchak, Yitzchak who allowed himself to be placed on an altar, on an altar and sacrifice it. That's what God wanted. 
Yitzchak didn't deserve that God should respond and listen to Yitzchak's pleas? Yes, it's true, Rachel gave the password to Leah and merited this promise, but why? I mean, yes, Rachel allowed her sister to marry Yaakov. Yitzchak offered his life. He would never get married. He was giving up his life. How is that any less of a merit? So let's go further with the Midrashic understanding of this passage. The Torah says in our parsha, the Ene Leah Rakos, and the eyes of Leah, describing Leah's appearance, the eyes of Leah were tender. Our rabbis explain her eyes were red from crying all the time. Our rabbis explain because Leah was destined to marry Esav. Leah was the firstborn of Lavan. Esav was the firstborn of Yitzchak. Firstborn will marry the firstborn. Leah will marry Esav. And Rachel was destined to marry Yaakov. Rachel is the secondborn. Yaakov is the secondborn. They're destined for each other. And Leah was distraught to spend the rest of her life with Esav, with a wicked, unrefined person. By giving Leah the password, Rachel wiped away Leah's tears. Rachel saved Leah from a life of misery. Don't worry, Leah. I will give you the words. And Rachel did this knowing the price that she would pay for it, a very heavy price. By giving the password to Leah and drying Leah's tears, well, there are only two choices. Either she thought she will never marry, or she will end up marrying Esav. <coughs> when one wipes away the tears of another at their own heavy price, God will not allow that heavy price to be exacted. Rachel's tears, the price for what she did to help Leah to save Leah's life, Rachel's tears must be comforted. Mini kolech mi belchi. God says, stop crying, Rachel. There will be a reward, a response to your actions. Your tears will be dried. And that's why it was Rachel's merit to which God responded. Greater even than Avraham and even greater than Yitzchak. Because Leah not only was selfless, but she was going to pay such a heavy price for the rest of her life. I want to say this in an oblique manner. And I hope that you will try to intuit what I mean to say. I want to promise you something. I want to promise you that when you look back on your life, you will never feel as good as when you helped someone else 
when it was hard, when it hurt to do it. That will be the high point in your life, I promise you. You'll look back and that will be the most meaningful moment in your life. I'm going to share one more piece with you tonight. All lessons from the Torah are precious, but some are more precious than others. There are certain insights that are not just learned, but incorporated into your life. They become a constant companion through life. This last insight that I want to share with you, I learned over 50 years ago. I do not claim to live up to it, but I am aware of it constantly. And consciously, it accompanies me through my life. At the end of our portion, after Yaakov has worked for Lavan. For 20 years, Yaakov decides the time has come to leave and to go back to Israel. <coughs> but in the text of the Torah, there is a surprising ambiguity of the motive for Yaakov to decide to move back to Israel to leave Lava. Vayomer Hashem al Yaakov. God spoke to Yaakov. God spoke to Yaakov. Shuv el Eretz Avosecha, Ulamaladatecha, Ve'eyeimach, go back to Israel. God said, go back. Okay, that, pretty, that makes it pretty clear. God says, go back. It's time to go back. Okay? So, Yaakov has a family. Vayishlak Yaakov, Vayikro the Rachelaleya. Yaakov calls his wives, Rachel and Leah, and he says to them, you know, I've noticed that your father really doesn't look at me with closeness and love like he used to, and there is competition between us, and you know that how hard I work for your father, and he keeps tricking me, whatever wage he tells me is going to be the wage, he switches it, and he deals with me with deceit, And also, an angel of God came to me and said that it's time to go back to Israel. So, what do you say? We move back to Israel. Okay. A strange passage. Because it appears when Yaakov is speaking to his wives that the main motive Yaakov has for leaving Lavan and going back to Israel is because he's not happy. He's not happy. He's not making it. He's not getting ahead. Lavan is not treating him well. He's dissatisfied. So let's go back to Israel. And also, by the way, God said, go back to Israel. <laughs> I mean, if God says, go back to Israel, what other discussion is there? What other reason do you need? There are a number of answers to this question. I want to share with you the answer 
of Rabbi Eliyahu Desler. Rabbi Desler explains that, of course, it was only because of God's word that Yaakov and his family decide to go back to Israel. Of course. But there is a kind of moral modesty and integrity that require them to state clearly their secondary motive for leaving the insecurity and discomfort with their life with their father and father-in-law, to acknowledge the human element of their decision. Of course the main reason we're going back is God said so. But it is also true that we're not happy here. So Yaakov wanted to emphasize that, not because that was the reason, but he wanted not to pretend that he was living on some superhuman level, that he wasn't affected by his environment and what was happening to him. So he is upfront about having this secondary motive, even though the main reason for going back was because, Yaakov, because God had spoken to him. Yaakov teaches us that this is what is demanded of a person. To be able to recognize that his motives or her motives are not more pure than they actually are. To be truly honest with yourself to be truly honest with your emotions, to be truly honest about your base motivation is one of the most rare qualities of refinement which Yaakov teaches us. I heard this story from Rabbi Pesach Kron. In the 1950s in Israel, one of the great outstanding Torah teachers and leaders was Rabbi Yechezkel Levenstein. He lived in Panovich, a suburb of Tel Aviv, in the early 1950s. Now, at that time, Rabbi Levenstein had a grandson in the United States. This grandson was nine years old, and he was the love of his grandfather's life. And his grandson, age nine, became sick. At that time in Israel, certainly in Panovich, there were no telephones in homes. It was very hard to communicate. And besides, family would not want to give difficult information over the phone. It just wasn't done that way. In America, the boy died. the family was able to reach Rabbi Nachum Parchovich, a great scholar in Jerusalem. And they said to him, please travel to Panovich, to Bnei Brak, and tell Rabbi Yecheskel so that someone is telling him in person. Rabbi Parchovich traveled to Bnei Brak. He came in. He said to Rabbi Levenstein, I have news from America. And Rav Levenstein understood. And they sat together, crying, over the death of his grandson.
an assistant came in to remind Rav Levenstein, you have to get ready because you are supposed to deliver a eulogy for the great Rabbi Yitzchak Sher, the great scholar originally from Slabodka, you just passed away, and you are, 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 the plan is that you are going to deliver the eulogy. It's been publicized. Everyone's going to be waiting for you. You got to get ready to deliver this eulogy. And Relevenstein said, I'm not going. Because if I go and deliver this eulogy for this great scholar and I cry, people will think I'm crying for this great rabbi. But in reality, I will be crying for my grandson. I won't shed false tears. This level of honesty and integrity is rare. But even if we never reach it, it should be a goal we always pursue. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.